Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 64, Highlights, Volume 2. In this episode, I take clips that highlight important points about Medicare for All. I would like to start with a revelation, or more specifically, Stephanie Nakajima's revelation about single-payer health care. So I graduated from college um, practically right into the recession and for years worked in the service industry, uh, you know, mostly waiting tables, making minimum or sub-minimum wage, and of course, not having health insurance. I probably couldn't have afforded comprehensive health insurance anyway on my salary, but it wasn't an option since I was rejected for everything but catastrophic coverage because I had a pre-existing asthma. And over those years, I lived in a crappy apartment with mold and my asthma, especially without access to you know a primary care physician, just got worse and worse. I did end up in the ER once, something that could have easily been avoided with medication. And sometimes people see that as sort of the climax of the story. Oh, another avoidable ER visit that would have been less costly if we had just been treating these people with preventative care. The worst part of those years for me uh, was the constant like chronic wheezing, which got worse when I tried to exercise, the coughing fits, you know, living day to day with untreated asthma, psychologically, the strain of living my life like that, not having a fundamental need taken care of really decreased the level of control I felt like I had over my life. And it was very disempowering, actually. And the thing is, I thought it was normal or, you know, it really decreased my quality of life, but I didn't realize it. And I didn't realize that it didn't have to be that way until I actually did get treatment. And that's sort of where my international story begins. So around 2010, I moved to Japan, my dad's country. And while I was registering my residency at City Hall, they asked, you know, do you need health insurance? As if it were something they were just giving out. (laughs) And it turns out that they were. And in fact, any resident of Japan can get on the public health insurance plan just by enrolling. You know, there's no application asking for your detailed medical history or wondering if you've made a small mistake somewhere in your insurance application where it could be rescinded. There's nothing like that. You know, they don't care what gender or age or whatever you are. And just like that, for the first time in my adult life, I had real comprehensive health insurance and it was so easy. And having that guarantee of being able to go to a doctor whenever, that was a revelation to me. And I realized then um, that I had been wronged in the United States, that I had a right to health care and that it was denied. And, you know, it made me angry. Miss Nakajima met her husband in Tokyo, a man from Denmark. They tried to move to the United States, but immigrating to the U.S. had its problems. So they ended up moving to Copenhagen. And there, Ms. Nakajima describes her experience with a single-payer healthcare system. And during my time in Copenhagen, I got to experience a true single-payer healthcare system. And what was that like? Yeah, so... Denmark has a true single-payer healthcare system. There's absolutely no co-pays. 
I think I paid a copay when I went to the dentist. Um, so dental care is one area for improvement for Denmark. But otherwise, no copays for any general specialist hospital care. I never feared going to the doctor because I knew that when I left the bill, no matter you know what test they did or what additional visit they recommended, it would always be zero. And that was a huge thing that prevented me from going to the doctor while I was in the United States. I would have, you would have no idea, even while you were in the doctor's office, even when you were asking the doctor, okay, you're recommending I do this, but you can't even tell me how much it's going to be. You know, so there's just this uncertainty that, you know, really prevented me from accessing care when I was in the United States. And that was totally taken away when I was in Denmark. Another amazing thing about my experience there was that I had totally free choice of GP or what do you call it, primary care provider and specialist. In fact, when I went to my GP to be referred to a specialist for an issue I was having, we didn't talk about, you know, which one was a network or whatever. He just spoke candidly with me about, you know, which ones he'd recommend and which ones he wouldn't, which ones were close to my house and all this. Um, I have a very restricted network here with my current insurance plan. And I feel like there's really a big difference um, between a totally open network and what we have here, which is, you know, a restricted network, which actually impedes my ability to get here because there are only so many specialists who, you know, take my insurance. Now on to the next highlight. The formation of fire departments provide a good example of why we need public financing of health care. In this segment, Dr. George Bonefalk describes how municipal fire departments were formed. Well, the history of fire departments is more interesting than I ever would have thought, and I didn't know a thing about it until I started looking into how government administered or financed health care might be a good thing for a population. And it turns out that treatment of putting out of fires has not always been a government-provided function. It turns out that in ancient Rome, the wealthiest man was a fellow named Crassus, and around 75 B.C., he developed the world's first fire brigade, and it was a private operation. And the way it worked is whenever there was a fire, he and his men would rush around to it, and they would stand there and negotiate with the building's owner. And if they could come to agreeable terms <laughs> under those circumstances, they'd put the fire out. And if not, the building would burn down, and Crassus would make a deal to buy the property for almost nothing, as you can imagine, and then build something back and oftentimes lease it to the fellow who owned it to begin with. That obviously didn't work out well for most of Rome, although it was a very successful free market, capitalistic, for-profit venture for Mr. Crassus. And things really didn't change for hundreds of years. The, the world seemed to be pretty content with this private fire department system. Now, even in London, when they had their Great Fire of 1666, there were no organized brigades, and that's one reason that fire spread as wildly and widely as it did. And it was sometimes after that that insurance companies began to form, and they would begin to insure buildings for their own protection. They organized their own fire brigades. And the system was that if you were insured, the company would give you a little plaque that you would put out in front of your house. And to me, those seem almost identical to these things that people have now when their house is patrolled by some sort of security system. We'll see those signs out in people's yard. So back then, it was fires. And if a house caught on fire, the brigades would all rush out. And if that house didn't have a plaque on it, they just shrugged their shoulders and let it burn down. And it didn't take too long before folks realized that every now and again, an uninsured house would burn down the insured house next to it. 
So they figured, well, there's got to be a better way. And it wasn't until the 1820s or so that uh, in Scotland and Edinburgh organized what appears to be the world's first municipal fire department. And uh, that worked out so well that a few years later, he went to London and organized a uh, fire department there around the 1860s. Part of that time, they were all covered by these insurance company arrangements. And again, that wasn't an act that spread like wildfire to make a bad pun. And in the United States, we didn't have any government-run fire departments until around the Civil War. I don't know if it had anything to do with the Civil War, but it was about that time that the various municipalities started organizing their own. And they just absorbed these private insurance company-run fire brigades into their municipal fire departments. So to me, that's just such a clear analogy to the healthcare situation where we have insurance companies now more and more owning hospitals and doctor's offices, kind of the health brigades. And we're realizing that's really not a very efficient way to do it and that there might be a better way. And the fire departments just seem like a perfect analogy for where we are today with health. So that's essentially the history of them. There's some colorful periods with volunteer fire departments over the years, and that figured in very prominently to some interesting American history in the early part of the 1900s. In New York City, they had these volunteer fire brigades, and they would rush out to fires, and curiously, over a period of time, they became very political. And Boss Tweed, this famous political figure in New York City, Tammany Hall, began his career as a volunteer fireman. And there's an interesting scene in that movie, The Gangs of New York, where there's a fire down there in that Five Points area. And these two volunteer fire groups arrive at opposite ends of the street. They start fighting each other over who's going to put out the fire. And the fire, meanwhile, sits there and burns while they're fighting each other over who's going to supposedly put it out. So that's kind of where we are. I find it to be just a very interesting parallel. In the next clip, Dr. Bonefalk explains how the formation of fire departments relates to health care and Medicare for all. Oh, yeah, I think that's an easy one. As we've alluded to, it was just the realization that for-profit free market system of taking care of municipal fires was grossly inadequate. And many people were suffering, and a better system had to be arranged. And I think that's exactly where we find ourselves with health care now. It's amazing that we have for-profit businesses running things that used to be totally charitable, like hospice. And all things in the health world, we have dialysis, which is chronic end-stage renal disease, is covered by uh, Medicare, even for people under 65, because it's so devastating. So you would think that we would have a system that would certainly look out for those people. But 80 or 90 percent of dialysis centers in the United States are for-profit ventures, which just really doesn't seem like the best way to handle a problem of a population. So I think we have immensely analogous situation in healthcare, where we can keep doing what we've been doing and the cost keeps rising and we can't afford it and people are suffering, or we can go to a, not a municipal here like fire departments, but a national, a federal system where the government arranges for the financing, but the simplicity and streamlining of the payment system is so huge that that would generate enormous amount of savings that are far more than would be necessary to expand this safety coverage to the entire community. I guess if you added up all the costs of these insurance company or volunteer or private fire departments over the ages and what it costs to administer them and do all the bookkeeping and send the bills and whatnot, 
and then compare that to what we have now with an organized municipal fire system that takes care of everybody in town, regardless of their situation, takes care of people who are here legally as well as illegally because you don't want some illegal person's house to burn down your house. And it's the same way with healthcare, I think. The parallels are very strong, and I just think there's no avoiding the conclusion that a government-financed but privately delivered healthcare system would be far superior. Now, that's where the analogy ends, because fire departments are socialized. Everybody talks about socialized medicine, and fire departments are socialized, just like the snow plows and public libraries and a lot of schools and police departments and a million other civic functions. But in a Medicare for All system, even though the government would provide the financing by collecting taxes and then paying the bills, the system would be privately administered. All doctors and hospitals and other health care providers would be in private practice, as they are now, some in public, some in private. But it's certainly not a government takeover. It's not government control. It's just government system financing to streamline things and get off a lot of cost savings and provide this safety coverage and protection to everybody rather than just a select few. In this segment, the president of National Nurses United, Jean Ross, describes how her experience caused her to support Medicare for All. She explains that health insurance coverage gets worse and worse as it covers less. She tells a gut-wrenching story that causes me to cringe whenever I hear it. Oh, certainly. I can say I've had a number of patients who, when I first started nursing, it was easy. You would take care of them in the hospital. The doctors would come and discharge them and give them a prescription and tell them when to come back and who to see. And that didn't seem to be a big issue. As the years went on, more and more often, I would hear things like, okay, this is the pill that you want me to take. What does it cost? Does my insurance cover it? And, of course, the doctor doesn't know. Most of the time, the nurses don't know either. That's another category of people you have to go through. And I thought, this is a lot of rigmarole. Um, The older the patient was, the harder it was for them to understand and deal with it. I ended up toward the end of my career here on the IV team, which means we place intravenous short-term and long-term catheters. I had a patient who was supposed to have what we call a portacath for chemo and some very caustic medications into the vein. You wouldn't, you could, but you would not want to put them through the veins in your arms because they pretty much what we call fry the vein uh, and the vein will be useless after that. So we put them in a deeper vein in the chest, and then that device stays in there for when you need it next. Well, this lady explained to me that her insurance was really poor and that she didn't want to bankrupt her family. So even though it was worse for her veins in her arms, she was going to go the old-fashioned route and not have this put in. So we did. We put the medication through the veins in her arms, and what ended up happening was She had a downturn in her health. She came in. They wanted to do a CAT scan with dye. We could not find a vein to put it in in her arm. And dye is just very quick. You put the IV in, they give the dye, they flush it, and you're done. You can take it out. But she had no veins left in her arm. In the end, the poor woman ended up with that portacat in her chest anyway. And to this day, I have no idea how she got it paid for. Perhaps at that point, her insurance company said, 
okayed it because there were no veins left in her arms. But that shouldn't have been. That was not the standard of care. Not at all. And so because she couldn't do it, I assume it cost more money based on what happened. Well, you had all of the catheters that we used as we tried and tried to use up the veins in her arm, in addition to the cost of putting in the cortical that she had to have eventually. So she had to go through the poking and the poking, which she shouldn't have had to go through, and ended up with what she should have had in the first place, and the worry about whether or not she would have to pay for it on her own. There is no justification to allow the unnecessary pain, suffering, and death that are caused by our current health care system. Medicare for all would end that. I started this episode by highlighting one person's revelation when she realized she could get the health care she needed without having to worry about cost. I think moving to Medicare for All would cause people to experience that same revelation. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, MedicareForAllExplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.